with Amazon. I wanted to provide a place that's quiet that people could go and focus on their mental and emotional well-being. The Zen booth is an interactive kiosk where you can navigate through a library of mental health and mindful practices to recharge that internal battery. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to episode 21 of Left Reckoning. It's been a hell of a ride. I'm looking forward to what's next. Thank you so much, everyone, to help us hit 10,000 subscribers. Uh, please keep spreading the word. Uh, this sport has meant so much to us. we got a big show tonight, don't we, Matt? And a little bit, we're going to be joined by Jason uh, Sadowski to be talking a little bit about the, the company that we opened with, actually, that brought us Pissing in Bottles and also a very novel way uh, to recharge humans' batteries. We're going to be talking about technology and politics and how that's a threat to workers' rights. Uh, much more. Uh, we're going to be talking in a second about BDS. We're going to be giving people an update about the strike in Alabama. And thanks to everybody so much for showing up uh, over the weekend to support them. Um, and much, much more. Uh, but I can't do this alone. I have to be joined now by my good friend, Matt Leck. How's it going, brother? Hey, David, good to be with you this Thursday evening. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice if uh, we, we make space for Amazon, those Amazon moments. That's, that's what helps my mindfulness when I know it has sort of the, a corporate uh, sort of stamp of approval. Um, time for recharging your batteries uh, mentally is always good. Uh, time to urinate uh, without it being counted against you in some sort of point system. Uh, I think even better. That's Zen to me. I mean, if we had more Zen, there's nothing more Zen than, you know, having your time to go to the bathroom on the clock. Or, you know, walking into essentially what looks like a big porta potty uh, to be inundated with a library of mindfulness materials, um, all while under the careful and loving supervision of your bosses and our, uh, our overlords. Nothing gets me more relaxed. Than this that. is, this was always a concern. Like, you know, Michael was always very big on the mindfulness thing, but there was always the concern with like the Sam Harris types taking it over for uh, like corporate sort of productivity purposes, uh, mm -hmm. basically. And, uh, all in, uh, on the Amazon, although they have, we should say deleted that tweet. Um, so that, uh, we had to go back and find that, uh, which is very funny when you can get Amazon. I mean, how dumb can a, a giant corporation be? I guess is the question. Well, I was going to say, you know, people should remember that, you know, despite it being an extremely powerful and large corporation, uh, Amazon is extremely sensitive to any kind of criticism like that. Um, they usually respond pretty quickly when people start dunking on, on their nonsense. Uh, obviously dunking is not enough. Um, but it is good to point out the hypocrisy because for God, like for God's sakes, we can't let that kind of stuff be normal. We have to like, just not let ourselves get to such a place uh, when a monstrous corporation like Amazon presenting something like an Amazon box for people to go and meditate into. Uh, we can never get to a place where that doesn't immediately fill us with rage. And uh, you know, we react with ridicule. And it's amazing that it's like not something they're just presenting to their employees, right? It's mm -hmm. this, there's a PR rollout with video editing and everything for that. They thought they were going to get some sort of positive press. Like, look at what Amazon's doing. Uh, not only do they support the 515, which, you know, they still support politicians that don't, but um, 
they they thought that was going to be like, oh, good, look at they've heard Amazon has heard their workers and they've rolled out this Amazon box, a porta potty, mm-hmm. without even a bathroom in it. No, absolutely nightmarish stuff. Well, before um, we get to Jathan, uh, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about uh, BDS um, because we're already starting to see what tends to happen with these big moments uh, regarding Israel and Palestine, where there is a horrific event, something that makes it very clear what's going on on the ground. There's a lot of international outcry. I would still contend that it's been um, much stronger and pointed than ever before. But, you know, there's a ceasefire and then things start to settle down. People stop paying attention. Uh, Despite having the same feelings, people don't really know where to go. And that was one thing, too, that was interesting about how organic a lot of the the reaction in the United States in particular was to what was happening um, was is that, you know, a lot of people wanted to do something, but they didn't really know where to go with it other than posting and educating, which in this context is extremely important um, and also donating. But as many activists and people in Palestine have been trying to remind folks. These aren't natural disasters. These are political disasters, uh, which means that there needs to be a political solution to them. Um, And I think it's important for us all to take a moment to remind ourselves that there are actual very concrete things that people can do uh, regarding uh, the Israeli apartheid system. Um, To start with, I wanted to shout out, and let me see, man, I actually have an issue with uh, sharing my screen um, because you have, uh, you're sharing something. Oh, I, let me stop that right now. Yeah, I wanted to uh, shout out Abby Martin and the Council on American Islamic Relations in Georgia for this huge victory uh, that we saw um, early this week, where uh, the federal court says Georgia BDS law violates First Amendment. The ruling comes in response to a lawsuit that was filed against the state by journalist Abby Martin. Correct. And I believe um, as part of a media conference in 2020, uh, Abby Martin was uh, trying to be required by Georgia Southern University to sign a pledge um, that included a loyalty oath to Israel. Um, by signing the contract, Martin would have promised to not boycott the country. The Council on American Islamic Relations and Partnership for Civil Justice Fund filed a lawsuit challenging that law on behalf of Martin. Um, and as of now, uh, the court has struck it down. And the pathway for uh, the Georgia law, uh, the specific Georgia law, seems like it's going to be a very long one if they want to reinstate it because they have to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So this is a huge, huge victory. And seriously, shout out to Abby Martin yeah. and all the people um, who were engaged in this. But I want to talk about what they were trying to stop there. They were trying to stop BDS. And if you think that this is not something that's serious, um, you should look at how hard um, the right wing and, um, you know, and Zionist organizations in the United States um, and the U.S. Um, the U.S. State Department in general is trying to fight to prevent people from engaging in BDS. Um, there have been over 200 bills that have been introduced across state governments to prevent people organizations from engaging um, in BDS. Um, in Oklahoma and Missouri, uh, they signed more laws during the COVID-19 pandemic to prevent people from getting into, uh, you know, participating in BDS. Uh, Trump issued an extremely egregious uh, executive order trying to prevent people from engaging in BDS. Um, and, you know, even amongst the more progressive wing of the Democratic uh, Party, uh, there is pushback. 
you know, notably only really Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Cory Bush are, are people who support BDS. AOC has been extremely, extremely disappointing on this. And it's really disappointing with her because she knows better. Yeah. And also, uh, we're not going to pull punches either. As much as we love, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is also really disappointing on BDS. And this is him uh, speaking on it just recently. There are a number of liberals who use the word apartheid to describe Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. A number of them liberals in the House um, who use that language. The executive director of the American Jewish Congress, who handled Jewish outreach for your campaign, has said um, that that word, Joel Rubin, has said that using that word has increased the level of vitriol that has contributed to this anti-Semitism. Do you think those who, who share your view should not use that kind of language? Well, I think we should tone down the rhetoric. I think our goal is very simple. It is to understand that what's going on in Gaza today is unsustainable. When you have 70% of the young people unemployed, when people cannot leave the community, when hospitals and wastewater plants have been destroyed, that is unsustainable. And the job of the United States is to bring people together. And that is what we have got to try to do. And look, um, again, you know, Bernie Sanders there is trying to highlight the egregious nature of, of the conflict, the asymmetry, uh, but it's certainly not enough. And I would go beyond Bernie Sanders. They're saying that, you know, we need to tone down the rhetoric. I don't think we need to tone it down. Um, but even more importantly than just talking about rhetoric, we have to move from beyond like from just rhetoric to actual political action to use a you know, phrase that we love from Leo Panich, moving from protest to politics. And I just want to give a very quick explainer as to what BDS is so people can understand it, right? Because it's a buzzword um, that people know is controversial, but what does BDS actually mean? It means boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, it was launched in 2005, led by Palestinians. Boycott comes first, right? Because it's the first way that we can engage um, in this kind of politics. And what boycott means is both boycotting companies that profit and engage um, in, in the apartheid system, right? And also that are, you know, supporters of the Israeli apartheid system, um, but also boycotting cultural events. So trying to encourage, you know, performers and musicians um, from not performing in Israel, participating in an academic boycott of the country as well. A divestment. That means encouraging banks, pension funds, and universities. I know we have a lot of you know university uh, students who listen to the show. Check out where your university is invested in, and you will oftentimes find uh, that they are invested in companies that directly profit um, from the apartheid system in Israel, right? And that's a great target for you to start to put pressure in your own community uh, to fight back against the system. And lastly, um, is sanctions against this brutal regime, right? But that will only come once you have a groundswell of support that has to be built up um, from, from the bottom up. And, and just so we're clear about this, the goals of BDS are very simple. People like to conflate and tell a lot of stories about what BDS represents, but the goals are very simple. It's one, end the occupation. Two, recognize the rights of Arab Israeli citizens. And three, recognize the right of return of Palestinian refugees. These are simple, common sense, basic human humanitarian solutions to this crisis, right? 
And this is not something that should be controversial. Uh, remember, you know, there are companies that you can be boycotting like SodaStream, Caterpillar, Puma, General Mills, Pillsbury, Barclays Bank. There's a lot of great lists of all of these companies that directly profit um, from this institution. But understand that the people who want to maintain the system of apartheid fight very hard to prevent you from being able to engage in organized boycott systems because they are afraid of what that will do to the system. Um, there's been a lot of success in, in, in even recent history when we're talking about apartheid regarding South Africa in similar tactics being used effectively to fight against these systems. And it's something that you can do directly right now, um, either through joining an organization that participates in BDS um, or encouraging members of your community um, as well to, to participate in this program. But this is the thing. It's like you have to move beyond just the rhetoric and we have to start taking action, especially if you're living in the United States, UK, Canada, uh, countries that very much prop up this system. I mean, how far we are from the sanction element of it, like I'd add to the sanction, we need to change the tax policy that allows foundations that literally fund settlements mm -hmm. uh, from being tax deductible. And then you contrast that with uh, all the uh, fundraisers done for Palestine over the past couple of weeks, how much difficulty <laughs> they're having getting money to people just to like, you know, pay for, uh, you know, basic necessities of society that have been bombed um, into rubble. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I've just it has to be noted time and time again, there is a huge money making um, operation, um, you know, behind the increased settlements. Um, these things are not just accidental, all these things like, you know, you can talk about, um, you know, a lot of different issues and motivations for why the settlements are ongoing, but there's a huge financial incentive. And by cutting off those taps for the United States and Europe, um, you can really do, you can really weaken those forces um, that right now have a lot of geopolitical um, and capital power. All right, uh, folks. We'll, uh, well, let's do a little pitch first before we get to Jathan. Uh, we have had a good week. Uh, last week we crossed 800 patrons. Uh, maybe that was a couple of weeks ago. And then we crossed 10,000 of you, mm -hmm. uh, YouTube subscribers. Very happy to see the traction that the show's getting and, um, the, what people are getting out of it. We're going to have a, uh, a think tank for everybody, uh, this weekend, uh, mm -hmm. for patrons, I should say, not for everybody. Um, so patreon.com slash left reckoning to uh, help us grow. And, uh, we're not ready to announce what the thousand patron, uh, milestone goal is. Um, but, uh, we have been playing around with some ideas. So we are, we, once we get a little bit closer to that, we'll start we're working to toward it. But I, I told people on Tuesday that we are not doing another food bucket challenge. No, we can safely <laughs> learn our out. lesson. Matt and I's bodies have suffered enough. It's been a couple of years of still like horrible memories of eating Jim Baker's food bucket. We're going to do something fun to celebrate a fun accomplishment instead of punishing <laughs> ourselves. Um, but definitely consider supporting us at patreon.com uh, slash left reckoning. And in addition to the extra bonus episodes, you also get the post game, uh, which we had a lot of fun last week. And I think we made public for a lot of folks. Too. Oh, yeah, that's People right. seem to enjoy it. People seem yeah, to enjoy it. We, I accidentally made it public. So people could have catch it, caught it live uh, free. And then I put it back behind the payroll because, uh, you know, get your grubby hands off it. If you, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, post game, um, patreon.com slash left reckoning for that. And uh, we'll be right back with jathan sadowski of this machine kills podcast author of too smart on digital capitalism be back after this
are back. I'm Matt Leck with me, David Griscom, and joining us, uh, Jathan Sadowski. He is a research fellow at the Monash Emerging Technologies Research Lab in Melbourne, Australia. So it's the future uh, for him right now. <laughs> um, he's also the co-host of the This Machine Kills podcast alongside previous Left Reckoning guest Edward Anguessa Jr. And he's also uh, the author, most pertinent to this discussion, uh, of Too Smart, How Digital Capitalism is Extracting Data, Controlling Our Lives, and Taking Over the World. Jathan, thank you for joining us from across the world this morning. Ah, so happy to be here on Left Reckoning. I mean, I've been I've been following Matt and David for a very long time, so I'm excited to actually talk to you guys. It was mutual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Jathan, what has drawn me particularly to your guys' work at This Machine Kills is what drew me to New York, really, which is I went to NYU to study technology and society at uh, the NYU Media, Culture, and Communication program. And when I was going there, there wasn't a whole lot. Of, it was very utopian, right? We were leaving, like, just a few years ago, it was those crazy Steve Jobs press conferences where the tech press would, you know, go there. And it was literally like a, a religion. Um, and now it's, we're, we're changing. Um, I think feel, things feel a little bit different. And um, I kind of want to lead into this question about how we think about technology, technological determinism versus Langdon Winner's conception of technopolitics. Because Langdon Winner's one of these guys that came up who was one of the few, along with Evgeny Morozov and a few other people, that were like actually saying something that I thought was worth paying NYU uh, how much I was uh, to expose me to. Uh, so yeah, technological determinism and uh, technopolitics and tech as a discourse now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. In the time period that you were at NYU, those those were some of the headiest days of the of the contemporary tech discourse where like so much the tech media at that time were just like very much like handmaidens of Silicon Valley. Like, you know, all tech media was essentially tech crunch, right? It was just like reprinting mm -hmm. press releases um, in the way that like the New York Times reprints like State Department talking points, like the tech media was doing the same thing for like Google and Facebook and stuff. And, and so, yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. It's only relatively recently that our ideas of technology are starting to get more intertwined with our ideas of politics, that these things are uh, inherently entangled and you can't disentangle them. I mean, that is really like the basis of Langdon Winner, who, um, is, you know, was a really big figure in the philosophy and political theory of technology, wrote a, a landmark book that actually uh, called Autonomous Technology, Technics Out of Control as a Theme in Political Thought that yeah. came out in the 70s. And actually on the TMK Patreon, we are doing a book club of that where Ed and I are going through that book chapter by chapter um, every other week discussing yeah. it because it really is foundational and so much of it is still super relevant for understanding what as winner calls it is that technology is a itself a political phenomenon he calls technology um, a form of legislation in life and he means that quite literally in the sense that like you know it, it, it sets the rules for how we live it creates processes for how we relate to each other it is in in every way, a form of legislation that in, in many ways is more impactful and more powerful and more influential for our lives than most laws ever are um, versus 
what you're talking about with like the tech determinism angle, which I think is what we see a lot out of uh, like our intuitive understanding of technology, which is like kind of really driven by the way tech companies tell us technology works, which is this thing that like, you know, it's, it's this force unto itself. It has its own motivations and its own goals. It falls down from the sky, like manna from heaven. And, and, and we, we just accept the gifts from the the gods (laughs) and Steve jobs, you know, all these people, right? Like that is a very deterministic view. I, I, uh, I'll just say, I'll wrap up. I'll quickly say, I always think of, um, the this book written by Kevin Kelly, who was uh, one of the co-founders of Wired magazine, where he's the book name of his book is What Technology Wants. I mean, that's the mm. terminism, right? Technology yeah. doesn't want anything, but he claimed that you could trace with a straight line from the Big Bang to the Blackberry, that all of these things were mm. predetermined uh, and you could see them in some essence that he called technium. It's it's a lot of bullshit. <laughs> You know, you know, as you say that, like this, and I like the civilization games, don't get me wrong, but it seems like mm-hmm. the way that they uncover technology is actually reinforces that belief a little bit. Um, David, I, yeah. I, no, I was just saying that, like, I, I was having the exact same thought as yeah. you on that, right? <laughs> um, and I, no, I think that that's, it's, it's really important too, um, you know, for people listening to this, like the reason we're talking about this determinism and the reason that it matters for politics, especially for emancipatory politics, um, is that a lot of people get a lot of mileage out of the idea of saying like, oh, these machines that we're developing are just neutral, right? They're just making the world better. Whatever the effects um, that they have, whatever the damages they have, well, that's just, you know, the consequence of, of human progress. Mm-hmm. Rather than things being developed to meet specific needs and in the world that we live in today, those specific needs are the ruling class and capital. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that that to me is the very framework of techno politics that like, in a lot of ways, I see my book and quite explicitly in the in the beginning, set it up as a kind of a spiritual successor to like Langdon Winner's work, a kind of updating of this techno politics. And, and uh, yeah, the, the way I kind of outline that framework, and you, you've nailed it exactly right, David, is that it, it, it Understanding technology as political means asking really critical questions around whose interests are represented, um, because all technologies materialize the interest of Mm. certain groups, of certain people, while at the same time excluding the interest of other people. And the, the, the idea that this is all deterministic or that technology is neutral is a really effective way of erasing all of those interests that have been embedded into the creation of that technology and the use of it. And I think that kind of um, another thing, I guess maybe you're responding to with this book is the Zuboff uh, sort of conception of digital capitalism. And I guess maybe that is a good time to, I guess, outline your understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, very early on in, in the TMK run, we had an episode called Zuboff is a PSYOP because <laughs> <laughs> we, we very much are uh, critical of her kind of view of surveillance capitalism because mm. for her, the problem is the surveillance, not the capitalism. For her, she sees surveillance capitalism as like as what she calls a quote rogue mutation of capitalism as as like some kind of aberration of a of a more good just uh what she calls advocacy oriented capitalism which she holds up like apple 
as the paragon of a good version of capitalism. She holds up um, pre-Alexa Amazon. Alexa was the bright line <laughs> moment for Zuboff where, they were, where she was like, oh, Amazon is actually really bad now because they came out with this Alexa thing. Is I it, mean, it tells you everything you need to know. There's one, maybe this is apocryphal, but do you, is, it, is it true that Bezos got into the book business because of the how much it, information you can gather from um like the type of books people buy. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's one thing I I heard. <laughs> what I heard is he got into the book business because it was just an economic decision about what commodity has high margins and moves a lot of product. Also mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so let's move on to smartness now. Because smartness did that this was when I I, you know, I had gone through my NYU education and it taught me not to trust any of this stuff. But it it seems like that's been the new narrative. Like you want everything to be smart. Um, how mm-hmm. how should we be thinking about smarts? I mean, not that I. I mean, maybe we have some Alexa listeners, people listening to this on their Alexa right now. But I imagine people are a little bit skeptical. But anyway, what? How should? How skeptical should people be? Yeah, I mean, absolutely skeptical, right? I mean, the smartness has become like this 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 ubiquitous buzzword. It's become the default for a mm-hmm. lot of the things in our lives. I mean, in a, in like. A technical sense, uh, we can understand smartness as things that are data-driven, network-connected, and automated, right? And But now that's everything from, like, your toothbrush to your coffee maker to your car to entire factories, right? Like, it's all smart mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but at, at the end of the day, like, that, that that's a technical understanding of it. But I think, again, we really need to have this understanding of smartness as, as an ideology, uh, it is really about creating this ideology of everything needs to be um, connected into like corporate servers. Um, and the reason for that is that it makes everything into a, a, a listening device. You can collect a lot of data. It gives um, companies a lot of control over devices, right? Because like when something is smart, it usually means it has software embedded in it that actually mm-hmm. makes it operate. But you never buy that software. You're always leasing it, right? Which mm-hmm. gives the company a lot of power over what you think of as your property. Um, you, and so it, it's, it's a really uh, quite insidious way of transferring a lot of value and power directly to the corporation. So it's no longer just a one-off transaction, but it's a continuous, constant relationship that you have with these corporations. And no, and it's one of those things that is, it's, it's wild to see a lot of the developments that you're getting, you know, from like the app-based economy and like how they're relating to things that traditionally you thought that you owned. Like I make the point to people all the time. It's like, you know, like I, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a hipster, so it's okay. But like, you know, I'm a record collection or whatever, but functionally, like I really don't own that much music despite spending like a lot of my income, you know, relatively to what I did before these things like Spotify, Apple music came around. Right. I don't own mm. that. Um, in fact, I, I believe it was, it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Amazon or one of the big uh, streaming services says that if you buy a movie, you actually don't even own it outright either. Right. I mean, it's just like an interesting development that we're having where while you might feel that we have more access to a lot of products than ever before, 
um, the the idea of property ownership in capitalism today is very, very much a fraught one, at least for people like us. When it comes to intellectual property, control of data, um, rich people have a lot more rights, I feel like, than they've, mm-hmm. had, they've enjoyed in the past. Um, but for us, it's, 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 uh, it's very much disappearing. Yeah, totally. I wrote I wrote a paper that came out last year called The Internet of Landlords, um, really looking at the way in which like digital platforms are enacting what I call new mechanisms of rentier capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it is a kind of a, a huge resuscitation of rentier capitalism, but also this like explosion of landlords, right? Like we don't have one landlord that we pay rent to every day or every month to live in a house. We have uh, uh, like a proliferation of landlords that we pay mm-hmm. constant rent to mm-hmm. for the music we listen to, for the our you know the software and our toothbrush, right? Like all of these things, all these subscription models, all of this is is rentier capitalism. And and you're right, it, it, it is a way of shutting off uh even the 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 rights that come with property ownership right the foundation of usa (laughs) (laughs) and concentrating that uh in a a smaller and smaller group of people and i just wanted to add to this too because you know the example we use right there was streaming services, right? But these developments that are technology, right? They expand to a lot of different parts of our lives. Like a big find, if you talk to to people who who are are farmers, rural Americans, something that gets people fired up is the right to repair, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, you know, essentially, you know, the argument that if you own something, you should be able to go to whomever you want to be able to repair it. For people who aren't familiar, um, you know, the, the more famous examples, like, you know, getting your iPhone, um, repaired is something that you, you know you really can't you can't do um, but what means more for for rural americans or, or for people who work in agriculture you own a tractor right you can only go to a certified shop to do it to get it, it repaired regardless of the fact that you outright own this machine in the first place right and that's just you know an example of how your property rights have been very very much uh, scaled back to accommodate uh, the capabilities of you know of of a capitalist class of of these big corporations to basically be able to monitor and surveil on like a mass scale um, people's ability to repair items that they've they've already bought yeah absolutely the 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 agriculture sector is a huge uh, battleground for these the right to repair and 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 as you say you know the the larger point around property ownership because yeah you buy a John Deere tractor you spend a million dollars to own a hunk of metal and rubber while you're still leasing the software that's necessary for it to actually turn on and run and you start doing un, unauthorized repairs on it and John Deere will brick your tractor in the same way that Apple will brick your iPhone right mm-hmm. they will just revoke your your software license uh i there was a there there was um a court case about this a few years ago with with ford motors which does very similar things and the general counsel for ford said in this court case it is our position that uh uh, consumers lease software not own software gosh well uh, kind of a um one another industry that you see uh, leading the way here is insurance. And David, if you could uh, mm. pull up the uh, our lemonade, our friends from Lemonade Inc. That thread, because uh, I just I want to read this for the uh, podcast viewers uh, too. So, uh, yeah, just click the first uh, picture there, and I'll just read read those. Yeah. Um, so Lemonade Inc. says 
Uh, Lemonade is built on a digital substrate. We use bots and machine learning to make insurance instant, seamless, and delightful. This puts us at a data advantage. In fact, we collect about 100 times more data than traditional insurance carriers. Here's why that matters. I mean, to our, on top of the ethical stuff, it just sounds like a lot of work to me. But anyway, a typical homeowner's policy has 20 to 40 fields. Anyway, we kind of get the deal here. And... Uh, Everyone thought this was very uh, concerned. Um, yeah, this ultimately helps uh, us lower our loss ratios, aka how much we pay out in claims versus how much we take in and our overall operating mm -hmm. costs in quarter one, 2017. Yeah. Um, so, and then they had to they had to come out and say, you know, we deleted that awful thread, um, which I, they intended <laughs> to be delightful, um, but it turned out to be awful. And they had to deny that their AI was going to engage in phrenology and other type of physiognomy physiognomographic i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right sort of metrics but i mean this sort of i was reading like your book as this uh story came out and it's just like we could have had you on probably every single week and had a news peg that perfectly fits it <laughs> but this one is just too perfect so i want your comments on it yeah and i mean it's perfect as well because insurance and insure tech is uh, low-key something I've been paying attention to for a very long time because I, I, I have a very large-scale project currently in the works um, of focusing on doing a, a big study of insure tech. And so it's something I've been paying attention to and been following this company, Lemonade, which is one of the like, you know, they're, they're a property insurance, uh, mm. insure tech firm. They're one of the like biggest, you know, startups for this in the world, huge valuation. And this thread was super interesting to me because it was all familiar. I had already read all of this stuff in their own uh, like investor pitch documents. And like, I was really digging into the company as I, as I want to do. Um, and I was like, I have read all this, this language around digital substrate, this flywheel of growth and, you know, all of this. <laughs> and the problem is, is what eliminate what, what this thread really demonstrates and the pushback on it is that Lemonade messed up because they accidentally tweeted out their investor pitch right they <laughs> they they didn't <laughs> they, they, it's not how they frame their comp their technology usually to consumers which mm -hmm. is all about the typical stuff of like you know we have these ai chatbots uh ai maya and ai jim that do customer feedback and claims and you know automate all this and it just makes it super convenient and frictionless and fast and efficient you know all of that stuff but all the stuff around like loss ratio and this flywheel of growth, like th this is stuff that has been in their investor pitches for years. And I think what it really shows and demonstrates perfectly is that all of these companies have different ways of framing the same technology um, and their operations to different audiences, mm. to investors, to the SEC, uh, to consumers. They frame it very differently. And, and I, I think it is very revealing um, and, and perhaps is also part of this like general kind of tech lash and general um, pushback and, and, and leftist attention on tech companies um, is that we are starting to see how they frame themselves internally, how they frame themselves to investors, which I think is a much more accurate uh, way of understanding their operations than the way that they frame themselves to consumers um, or to the SEC, for example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just thought that was um, 
really i mean i appreciated it as as a producer of a of a show because it's it's exactly this like the section you say like watch the insurance industry to be particularly uh, bad at this and immediately yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and yeah and, and i mean i will say as well i mean the the what lemonade is doing in insure tech is like a huge booming sector right now the insure tech uh, sector is growing very rapidly globally as uh, both startups, but also big incumbent insurers are starting to look at how can we use AI? How can we use data um, to do things like, uh, you know, super personalized premium adjust, you know, dynamic personalized premium adjustments, you know, things like that. How can we, you know, their, their ultimate goal um, that they're, you know, one of their goals that they're really trying to get to is basically like, how can we use data from, for example, like your smart fridge to get access to information about like your eating habits um, mm-hmm. and use that as a way to change your healthcare premiums. And, you know, all of this, um, I think progressive has called it uh, in, in some of their documents around like their in-car tracking devices, um, the statistics of one, which is this idea that they will gather so much data about one person that they will be able to run statistical analysis on one person. It's a total like demutualization of insurance. It undermines the very purpose of insurance as a way of doing collective risk pooling mm-hmm. by making it a hyper-personalized uh, targeted service. No, I think that's like, it, it's extremely interesting to see. And again, um, you know, to, to go back to the point you're making at the beginning, these things aren't neutral, right? These technologies are, are being utilized and developed with a specific goal in mind, not to make sure that everybody, the, the general public out there is better insured and better and their investments healthy. are better protected. No, it's to make sure that a bunch not. of investors can make more money um, from what, you know, seems to be a safer bet, right? Yeah. So let's just address mm-hmm. the guy that's like, I'm really healthy and I work out all the time and I want, uh, I want my insurance company to see my eating habits. Like, I don't know. Maybe your insurance company finds out about some um, health supplement that you've been trying and all of a sudden you become a red flag too. So like, I don't know. I, I'm just, when you say that, I imagine like pulling out cash before getting fast food. Um, like, try, try <laughs> yeah. To- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Start paying for your McDonald's in cash. <laughs> <laughs> or Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. um, let's, uh, let's, yeah. Speaking of, uh, well, I guess Peter Thiel came out of, kind of against Bitcoin recently, but let's talk about cops. Um, two sort of um, <laughs> concepts in the smart or sort of technology realm I want to go through is both Palantir and Fusion Center. So let's start with Palantir. Uh, what should people know about mm. Palantir? Uh, people should know everything about Palantir. <laughs> <laughs> Truly one of the most like actually existing evil companies in the world today. And, you know, you bring up Peter Till, right? And he's, uh, you know, Palantir is, is uh, one of Peter Till's babies, um, as is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the sister company of Palantir is called Andural Industries, which is like, you know, uh, basically for the um, for ICE and the Department of Homeland Security uh, and Dural Industries is to them what Palantir is to uh, the CIA and police departments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, and, and like in a nutshell, Palantir, uh, it is a, a, a big data crunching factory. I mean, they do what they call social network analysis, which is this idea that um, they, they 
aggregate a lot of data from across multiple different kind of siloed data pools uh, and, and then use all of that to create these like really detailed network analyses of um, people's uh, relationships of who they know, who their friends are, what addresses and, you know, vehicles and property is related to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it all came out of, uh, this, like, you know, they, they were originally had a lot of funding from the CIA to do this kind of stuff in order to track like terror sales, um, in, in the middle East. Right. But they quickly found out that it was a lot more lucrative to sell that software and service to police departments because there's a lot more police departments. There's only one CIA mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot more money. And so there's a bigger market there. Um, and so they are it, it really does play into uh, I, I, what I call what I see in my book is this transition. Right. We know about the militarization of the police where the police are out there looking like, you know, the an occupying army. But I think Palantir really represents this transition towards a an intelligentization of the police, mm. where the, the police start acting more like intelligence officers or like intelligence agencies, um, where when Palantir comes in, you know, to the police, uh, it really starts to change how the police do their work, where things like data collection becomes a much more essential part of even like a beat cop, right? Um, you know, they're they're filling out these these like filled cards or these interaction cards every time they stop someone on the street, right? They, they fill out the cards, you know, providing information: who is this person, what happened, what was the stop, and all of that. Uh, information is then digitized right and that's fed into this big kind of uh, silo of data that palantir um, has access to and and makes sense of and creates interfaces for the police to access um, so it really is kind of this way of you know uh, it, it falls into this trend that um i i have kind of identified in my work of data as capital, right? Mm -hmm. This cap, the data is like a core part of capital or a core form of capital now um, in the economy and society. And a lot of uh, institutions that did not see capitalizing on data as a core part of their business or their operations are now transitioning towards being like, no, data is the name of the game. Like, mm -hmm. and, and, and police are falling in line with that. And I'll, I'll quickly give a shout out to the work of uh, Sarah Brain, who's a sociologist who has done, to my knowledge, the only ethnography of Palantir, but it, it, she did a really in-depth ethnography of the LAPD um, but L the LAPD was one of the first major police departments in the country that had these uh, partnerships with Palantir. So um, a lot of what we know about how Palantir operates in police departments, or at least a lot of what I know about it, comes from Sarah Brain's sociological work, because a lot of this is very secretive and, and mm -hmm. very hard to access. I mean, I think anybody who saw the a type of or has seen the type of mendacity police uh, can exhibit trusting them with spy powers is i mean uh, utterly horrifying um uh, fusion <laughs> yeah, centers it's a, it's a democrat it's a democratization of the nsa right, right. it's like it's an nsa <laughs> in every city yeah <laughs> yeah especially in in a future that i imagine we're going to see a lot more protests i mean we, it's it's clear we're just going to have another generation of people that were entirely spied upon um, fusion mm -hmm. centers. Uh, tell us about those. 
Yeah, fusion centers are interesting because the, so the fusion centers are a um, Department of Homeland Security initiative, which also came out of like so much of this stuff did uh, kind of post 9-11 global war on terror. Um, but fusion centers are in a lot of ways something that Palantir, very complementary or the kind of public version of Palantir's privatization of this, where uh, a DHS fusion center is, yeah, just is doing what it says. Data fusion is the, uh, the, the, the bringing together of lots of different data from lots of different silos. Um, so, you know, data that would not normally be in relationship with each other or talk to each other or be analyzed together. Fusion centers have the power of bringing all of that data together. So data from, you know, uh, social services and the DMV, uh, you know, all of these different um, predominantly government departments and agencies that oftentimes do not talk to each other. The DHS is like, no, we need all of this information to talk to each other because from the fusion of this data, we can find new insights. We can find more mm -hmm. stuff about more people. We can, you know, predict X, Y, Z, whatever they say. But uh, so now there's these, these like networks of fusion centers across the, across the U.S., and police can uh, act, cannot just like, you know, uh, access it whenever they want, but they can kind of apply to access data from the fusion center and so on. And, and um, reading, you know, uh, uh, reading studies of these fusion centers from other social scientists, um, they've been, you know, people that work in them have called them a, a one-stop shop. It's the idea that rather than having to track down all of this data from all these different sources, you just go to the fusion center and it, it, it's, it's the Amazon of spying, right? You just get whatever you want from, from the fusion center. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of all the sort of boasted America. I heard like growing up about how bad it was behind the iron curtain and the amount of spying in Eastern Europe and stuff like that. And yeah, um, <laughs> Uh, Dave, unless you have something, I want to move on to Luddism. Um, that sounds good. So, yeah, I see, I, I've already seen some people in the comments uh, uh, blanching a little bit at uh, saying Luddism is good, but I, I'm convinced uh, with the proper understanding of the term uh, that we would all consider ourselves Luddites. So, uh, Jathan, for those of us, people are less convinced, what, how should we understand uh, the legacy of Ned Ludd? Oh, I, yeah, I mean... I, I, I am, it is like my one mission in life and Ed's one mission in life, uh, to resuscitate and repair the good name of Ned Ludd and Luddism, um, because right, like Luddism right now, and, and it does provoke this kind of knee jerk reaction because it, the, the name has been dragged through the mud for a very long mm -hmm. time. Um, it is now, uh, seen as, you know, it, it's like a slur in, in Silicon Valley, you know, it's like the worst possible thing somebody could call you as a Luddite. Uh, and, and, and for good reason, um, because right, if we look back at the actual history of Luddism, it is not what it is, cons uh, uh, seen as today, which is this kind of like, uh, primitivism, this knee jerk, mm -hmm. Uh, re uh, rejection of all technology of, of modern life. And, you know, this all, oh, we just need to go back to some pre-civilization. That's the way that it's seen. But in reality, the, the Luddites in um, the early 1800s were 
a group of workers. It was a worker movement against capital. The Luddites, you know, yes, they smashed uh, the machines. They smashed the, the looms of these factories. But it wasn't because they were afraid of the, the competition of these technologies or they didn't want to use the technologies. They smashed these machines because they were used to make the working conditions of these people a lot worse. They were mm. used to ramp up exploitation, um, to speed up work, to uh, lower wages. Right? They were used as a, uh, as a tool against labor and worker power by capital. And we can see this. Uh, this motivation in the way that the Luddites did not just uh, wantonly smash all of the looms. They were actually quite uh, the, the, um, quite precise about smashing the looms of, of the factory owners who were notorious for treating their workers really poorly while leaving others alone, right? So it, mm -hmm. it was in a very serious way a, a worker movement um, against capital, hitting capital where it hurts, you know, in, in their machinery, in their tools of exploitation. And, and, and not only that, but I mean, Luddism was a glorious moment of solidarity and collective action by workers. I think they, uh, the reason that, um, you know, on TMK, Ed and I are really trying to bring back Luddism is because we think that there's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of how we think of tech criticism, you know, going back mm -hmm. to the beginning of our conversation is understanding tech criticism as something that is fundamentally adversarial, something that should be dangerous to the interest of capital, um, to the material conditions of capital while raising up the material conditions of workers. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, understanding that the reason why the, the, the good name of Ned Ludd has been dragged through the mud is uh, because, uh, because of the capitalist really, mm -hmm. you know, saying that this is, this is actually threatening to us. We need to do every, we need to assassinate the character of this. They actually, this was one of the first instances of capital um, uh, uh, asking the state to bring in the army to suppress workers was the Luddite uh, you know, uprising. Um, and they did. They, the army came in and killed um, so-called Luddites and made Luddism a, a, a treasonous act because it was so threatening to the interest of capital. It, it, it's a lesson about activism too because there's this way that activism is defined you either have nonviolence or you have terrorism and sabotage is something different i mean i like between those two and it's i think i mean very threatening to the interest mm -hmm. of capital so it's, we shouldn't be surprised at this uh, uh reaction to uh uh lud um jathan that was great uh, go ahead go ahead Oh, no, no. Go, go ahead. I mean, I could go off on this and, and off, the linkages off. to sabotage, um, because I, I think, you know, fast forward a um, 100 years later from the Luddites and you've got the, uh, the IWW, right, the International Workers of the World, and you've got people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Um, writing a brilliant pamphlet in defense of sabotage, right? Um, saying that this, that, that like the strike, sabotage is a necessary tool in the workers' arsenal against capital. Um, like the strike, we should not uh, moralize about sabotage. We should not 
uh, look down upon or question the motivations of workers who engage in sabotage, but instead understand why they do what they do and how we might support what they do. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that is in the same way. I think what we see of, of Luddism is it is really about understanding and, and asking really critical questions. Does this technology contribute to social welfare? Does it contribute mm-hmm. to socially beneficial ends? You know, I've, I've called it like uh, the Marie Kondo of technopolitics, right? You hold up this technology, you ask those <laughs> questions, and if the answer is no, then you throw it in the trash, right? Um, and, and we need to have, a, we need to get more comfortable with understanding technology as something that is not only political, not only human made, but as something that therefore can be unmade, can be deconstructed and dismantled mm. by people for, 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 for good ends, right? Just because something exists doesn't mean it deserves to exist. And I think that's a myth of determinism that we are sold, um, is that all we need is innovation, more stuff on top of more stuff on top of more stuff. I think we need to start asking more questions about why we have this stuff and if it deserves to exist. I think that's that's on point. It's like, you know, a lot of the way that it's like Luddism is properly understood are people who have like severe fears of technology or people who don't understand technology. Uh, when in fact, the, the picture that you're painting right here is people who very, very much understand technology and what it's doing to them and doing to their community. Um, and it's something that should be replicated, uh, you know, much more because especially if you read tech journalism, uh, I know there's a lot of great folks out there who do good tech journalism, but a lot of it, um, you know, is just, as you were saying earlier, you know, repeating press releases, acting as if these things are, you know, have no effect on like on our material reality, but are just expressions of us uncovering the truth of, of, of the being, right. The truth of the world, right. Uncovering the, you know, the tech, um, you know, that is just always out there instead of a very specific, um, of a very specific process that is bringing about a, 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 a particular end. Um, and I, I think it's important for us to understand, not just as like workers, right. Um, but also in politics, because one thing that was so frustrating, for example, is like, you know, Andrew Yang's uh, campaign in, in, in 2020, right. The way that he talked about uh, unemployment, right. It was like, well, this is just the consequence of like the wheels of history moving in a certain way because technology and, and robots and artificial intelligence are just reaching a point and there's nothing we can do to stop it, but we'll just, you know, put a bandaid on the bottom. Right. It was very attractive to some people, especially like working people were attracted to it because they're seeing, Oh, my job is becoming more automated. There is more surveillance than I've ever experienced. Um, and it's a great tool for, you know, for the wealthy and, and people like Bezos to say like, yeah, well, this is just the natural order of things rather than people having to understand it's like, well, no, um, the technology is being developed in a certain way uh, because you have been historically put onto this, you know, lower rung, um, like the working class in this country has been, you know, devastated, you know, for decades and decades and decades. So technology is being used to, to brutalize you and to, to turn you more and more into a machine. Um, you know, again, these, like these, these things are not just coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and, you know, the, a lot of the coverage around like Amazon um, over the last, you know, year or so, right. Uh, I think also really shows that, you know, the, the conditions that the Luddites were originally reacting against sounds a whole lot like an Amazon warehouse. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's the fact that these things, um, 
these things in capitalism continue to replay themselves. These same relationships continue to replay themselves, but in ways that just are ever intensifying, right? And I think that the reaction to them also demands an equal and opposite reaction, right? One that is increasingly intensifying to meet uh, mm-hmm. to meet capital where it is trying to to meet us absolutely uh well i recommend people buy the book it's too smart how digital capitalism is extracting data controlling our lives and taking over the world uh there's also the section on uh, oversight and ownership as solutions that people will be interested in uh it's an excellent book uh, jason jason i can't thank you so much or thank you enough for being uh with us tonight uh I guess this morning um, uh, <laughs> in Melbourne, but I uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. Ah, oh, thank you so much. I've been, I've been really looking forward to chatting with uh, with you and with you guys. And I mean, th- this this has been great. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. Left Reckoning is great. Appreciate that, man. All right, folks, we'll be back uh, in about a couple minutes with uh, more Left
All right, folks. Welcome back to Left Reckoning. Uh, definitely subscribe to uh, This Machine Kills. Uh, yeah. Very, very smart podcast about technology um, with the uh, adequate skepticism of these freaks that are controlling our lives. Uh, and I'm glad the conservatives have finally joined us on that. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, actually, they're getting a little bit ahead of us in terms of the hating Zuckerberg and Musk. And uh, I, I, we need to bring that. that why we, that's why we need to bring Luddism well, back and own this. Well, we need to bring it back in a real way. Um, we'll talk about this in the post game, I think. But uh, Dan Patrick here in Texas is like making this big freak out about social media, like censoring conservatives, right? Um, which is fairly, you know, for the most part is, is BS. But it's a great example of how they're getting pop popular like anger at these platforms and they're just directing it to their like shitty media outlets um you know using it to their own advantage instead of obviously fighting for people's rights um, and it's and, like in the from from a one of the leading states with the bds bands uh talking yeah. about it's just it's it, it really is like almost it, it's really cover right like when you're de- you rather play offense than play defense um and playing well, i mean for play them that, it's just yeah. it's just like being a conservative is acting like um you know this is like a, a minority position or like you know historically marginalized position instead of like a dominant part of american ideological life <laughs> you know? uh, um but before we get uh we go to the post game there's a couple stories we want to do um first we want to start with you know just the good news and, and celebrate again and, and the good vibes from last weekend um, and the fundraiser for the the striking uh, miners in, in Alabama, as they continue their strike, uh, they definitely can use all the support um, that they that they can get uh, financially, especially is very helpful. And we were very proud to be able to, to be a part of uh, a fundraiser that I think got somewhere between like the upper 60s, low 70s. I don't have the number in front of my head right now but it's uh it was an incredible outpouring of support from all around yeah we had the honor on friday night of uh, bumping them past 50k if memory serves yeah, um and memory did. might not serve uh, for, uh might not serve me yeah might not serve david <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah we, we zoomed right past 50 and got 51k so uh that's f- exceptional use of these uh, platforms and shout out to uh the Valley labor guys for uh putting that together yeah, and thank all of y'all um, who are listening who showed up and supported. Yeah. Um, well, we just wanted to do a quick update on um, you know the strike there and shout out the people still on the ground even doing the reporting, uh, notably Kim Kelly. Um, let me get it right here. Uh, this is from last week. Is this coming up, right? Yep. Um, oh, make, sure, uh, make sure sound is uh, shared too. Okay. I'll have to check that again. Sorry, y'all. Um, Here we go. Um, This is uh, Kim Kelly. Uh, Yesterday, 300 coal miners on strike at Warrior Met in in Brookwood, Alabama, uh, marched from a local church to a mine entrance number seven and blocked it for about three hours to prevent scouts from leaving. The sheriff was called and things got a little wild. Um, eventually, um, eventually the, uh, the, the, um, the miners got arrested, um, and had to uh, wait in County jail. Um, but this is just showing that there is no let up here on the militancy of, of the striking, uh, coal miners. Um, this is an incredibly important fight 
you know, not to go over the whole history, but people remember um, this is an example of how what's happening across the country, particularly in the financial industry, affects every community in this country. The workers here uh, worked for a coal mine that went bankrupt um, and was having you know, financial troubles. They agreed during this tough period to accept some pay cuts um, and, and other, uh, you know, and other different, you know, changes to their contract. Now the company, which is owned by a conglomerate of a bunch of, you know, New York financial firms, big Wall Street money, um, is now incredibly viable. And now these people who personally sacrifice from their bottom line and also sacrifice their bodies every single day, um, you know, are asking for a fair contract and they're still being stonewalled out. Um, so this has been an incredible showing and, you know, continue to support them in, in this fight. And it's incredible to be able to, you know, participate and, and to help put some money in their pocket, but they still need all the eyes and ears that, you know, you can give them and, and are certainly, um, it's important to be able to financially support them, uh, if you're able to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I feel like the, they took a $6 was it, uh, pay cut the equivalent of yeah, like $6, $6 an pay hour cut, pay cut. And then they were offered like a fraction of that, um, uh, back as yeah, like you said, the company's and the and, and the goal here, the goal here is you know is I mean this is just hitting at a lot of those theoretical points that we make right, um, which is the power of solidarity um, and how much that can fuel people in these kind of moments, but also the power of the, of the state and the police force. I mean, it's the police who are showing up trying to break uh, the system. Um, it's trying to use things like uh, hunger and fear of like not having health insurance and things like that to try to break uh, the will of labor. I mean, the whole system right now um, is, you know, from Warrior Met's perspective, um, they're just trying to starve the the strikers out, right? They're hoping that people not having enough money to support themselves during this period of time will break uh, the strike. I mean, this is just showing a lot of those dynamics that are just fundamental um, to, to capitalism are the reasons why we're socialists and we just need to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to be practical, be practical in our support um, and to bring that kind of, you know, theoretical understanding into our, our political praxis. Absolutely. I wanted to shout out another move here too, um, which is happening here in, in Texas. It's a little bit of a different um, struggle, but you know, it's, it's similar kind of tension here, a lockout protest, local steel workers union plan to demonstrate outside Exxon mobile um, headquarters. And I believe since May 1st, um, the workers here at this uh, facility in Beaumont, Texas, um, have been locked out of, of their workplace um, after talks between them and the company stalled. So it's USW Local 13243. 650 members have been locked out of the Beaumont plant since May 1st after talks between them and the company uh, stalled. So this is another example of... Uh, you know, of egregious practices from a big corporation. Um, the union is called the lockout unfair labor practice and they filed charges with the national labor relations board. Um, and they're continuing to try and fight uh, to make sure that they're able to, uh, uh, to get a fair deal. Cause it's the same kind of fight there where, you know, they're basically trying to prevent them from having a kind of typical contract. I think they're trying to get rid of uh, seniority uh, preferences and, and, and raises and things like that, which is a great way to undermine organized and uh, organized labor. Um, so that's another fight that certainly, um, you know, needs your support. And it's another example of one of the critical fights that we're going to be seeing over the next few decades, as there is more and more pressure 
on fossil fuel companies, you're going to see them try to squeeze those workers as much as possible. Um, it's a huge opening um, for the left to be able to show and, and stand with workers and to say, you know, we need to find a way to make sure that your gains and, and your victories last because it's very clear that these companies don't give a damn about you and they're going to get off scot-free if there's some kind of big transition away from traditional ways of producing energy in the United States and the workers are going to be left behind. We need to leverage our power as much as possible right now to ensure that there's a just transition um, and, and showing your support um, is, is a great way to start building those kind of conversations in that movement. Yep. I guess absolutely. Solidarity is very important. Uh, uh, let's do a little bit of North Dakota or Dakota news. Um, mm-hmm. I'll start with the North Dakota side. Um, so 75% of prisoners in the state uh, prison systems in North Dakota are vaccinated, which is higher uh, most certainly than the general population um, of North Dakota, who uh, is one of the more vaccine um, skeptical states. However, uh, for some reason, uh, and I'm pulling up the uh, official's name here, um, two of North Dakota's biggest jails, Bismarck and Wilson, these are county jails, are not offering COVID vaccinations to inmates after sheriffs refused proposals from local health agencies to provide shots. Uh, the Burley Morton County, this is from uh, Jeremy Turley um, of the Bismarck Tribune, uh, a good journal, or of a He's a Bismarck correspondent to the Fargo Forum. Um, the Burley County uh, Detention Center and Williams County Correctional Center are outliers among their peers in North Dakota. Um, uh, Burley County Sheriff Kelly Lieben said there wouldn't be much demand for the shot, even if they offered it. But a spokesman for the ACLU of North Dakota said depriving the inmates of the option to get vaccinated is a human right. And Jeremy mm-hmm. points out, of course, that they're in the jails that are offering the vaccine, there's plenty of uptake for it. So just lying. Um, Burley mm-hmm. County Sheriff Kelly Lieben is a liar um, and should be forced to, uh, in my opinion, put up evidence for that claim about demand or resign. Of course, that's not what ultimately is going to end. But um, it's disgusting. Um, and not really a whole lot else to say about it than that. Like it's an attempt to kill prisoners is yeah. what that is. And but that system too is like it's deep into the you know it's a deep part of american capitalism is having a really horrific uh you know prison system to to abuse people uh, to get free labor and to always have that very severe threat over your head um that being sent to prison in america is is not something i would wish on my worst enemy now on similar news before we get to speaking of my worst enemy South Dakota <laughs> and Matt's favorite governor, uh, Governor Nome, um, has been in a pretty, pretty absurd fight, right? And it's and it's one of those things where, okay, let me just put it really clearly. They're trying to do a big fireworks show on Mount Rushmore. For people who aren't familiar, this is just another horrible chapter in America's uh, genocide and war on on Native peoples. Um, for, for the Sioux and Lakota in particular, um, the land where Mount Rushmore is, is called the Black Hills. And it's where people believe that the world uh, came from. It's the beginning of everything, right? It's an extremely holy place. Um, and what did we do to it? Uh, we once seized it and, and genocide the people who were from there and then carved just absurd monument. 
uh, to a bunch of well, butchers as well. <laughs> yeah, like originally we're like, oh, we'll keep that for you. And it was mainly because we couldn't project force and, uh, you know, um, extraction that far. Um, and then immediately we start settling into the Dakota territory and people start mining it. And the government mm-hmm. has to decide whether to kick the miners out or kick the uh, Native Americans out. And guess which they decided. Um, of course, they read Custer and all that whole uh, story. A little bit too much to get into now, but yeah, exactly. No, and I it's, mean, it's, it's, it is just, I've been there. Um, it's uh, an amazing place. I went there um, as a child and, uh, you know, saw the um, monuments and stuff like that, which were not the far, the, they, they should be, whatever the tri- tribal communities want to do with the statues there should be done. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you don't, the, that idea that you would go to the Black Hills for those awful statues when the Black Hills are just this amazing sort of oasis hills yeah. in the middle of the plains um, is it, yeah it's it's gross but um, yeah so they want to shoot fireworks off in it um, to you know again more rah rah America stuff uh, spiking the uh, football of uh, empire in you know the end zone and. and- you know, it's all it's all because no one wants to. She's pulling at like two percent in the fucking straw polls, but she still wants to run for president. Mm. When and and there's that, and they're trying to present it as a, an example of federal overreach, right? Um, so there's been a lawsuit. A judge sets a June target for Mount Rushmore firework decision. U.S. District Judge Roberto Lang has decided the, um, he will aim to have a choice made by June second on whether to require the United States Department of Interior to reverse itself and issue a permit to the state of South Dakota for July 4 uh, fireworks at Mount Rushmore National Memorial. Um, This is notable because people who are, um, you know, against Noam and this lawsuit and are now included in the lawsuit have been uh, native tribes. Um, So I believe the the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe um, is now a party to the lawsuit trying to prevent uh, known for being able to do uh, you know, to do this, um, this display. So it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, of course it's stupid Republican raw, raw nonsense. Right. But the kind of underlying fight here is native sovereignty um, and, and rights over, over parts of the world that in my opinion, they have um, <laughs> the clearest claim uh, to complete an absolute control. Right. I'm not talking about the the facts of the legal case. What I'm saying is like the underlying um, factor in this is a question of of native sovereignty. If it's explicit or not, it's definitely a, a part of this of this Absolutely. fight here. Yeah, I mean, I've made the point a couple of times, but you know, reading more about the expulsion of the Dakota from Minnesota, um, mm. it's in the context of what Israel's doing in Palestine. It's you know. Um, uh, it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and there's a lot of really beautiful solidarity from 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 Palestinians and and Native peoples, you know, both back and forth over that um, as well. That are, are really amazing and, and beautiful to see. Well, let me see. I want to um, pitch everybody real quick to join us um, for the post game, uh, where we're going to be uh, learning a little bit from a movie genius uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, learning about Trump's vision of the cosmos and the universe. Oh, Trump became president, folks. <laughs> Trump just absolutely pulling up from the half court like Damian Lillard and draining it <laughs> with the correct take on UFOs. Um, and yeah, it's going to upset a few people, but um, 
I love it. I love the way Trump approaches the UFO issue. It's it, it made me miss him. We'll also do some for those of you who are upset that we're doing uh, a, what could be portrayed as pro-Trump material. We're also going to do some pro-Joe Biden material, sort of, um, <laughs> which is like the best response to the January 6th thing is like, yeah, it's bad what the Republicans did, uh, but I'm eating ice cream right now, um, which is, I think, the attitude we, um, we should have, like acknowledge it. But, you know, let's not, like, light our hair on fire and maybe move on to... I mean, the problem with Joe is that he's not moving on to actually doing shit about it, um, mm-hmm. as uh, as we'll probably also get into um, with his lack of will, which The Onion said, like, Joe Biden worried his agenda is going to be threatened by the fact that he doesn't care about it. Um, yeah. Just, well, you want to do it? Yeah. Let's get to that a little bit before we go, yeah. um, because... You know, we're we're one day. You know, we're waiting for the official budget from Joe Biden that they're going to propose. Um, so all the information this Thursday night for people who are watching this later. Um, you know, all the information that we're getting is coming from you know New York Times, Washington Post reports from inside sources. But everything that we've been getting about this budget um, has indicated that all of the big plans that he was running on to confront and prevent a populist left movement led by Bernie Sanders, they ain't happening. He's dropping the public option. Um, He's going to completely stop any plan of uh, student loan forgiveness. They're not going to do anything about prescription drug costs. Uh, I don't think they're going to do much about raising uh, the estate tax. Um, And that's just in, you know, in the budget, which for people who aren't familiar, um, you know, the president doesn't set the budget. This is like his list of asks, um, you know, to Congress uh, and obviously would already be going through a lot of, uh, you know, pruning uh, with with the way that the, the Democratic Party has been operating, um, even in the early Biden administration. But I, I wanted to note um, both the things that the top line issues that have been cut and the fact that the infrastructure plan. Um, we're already starting to see some kind of waffling on that um, where, you know, Biden at first, I think was proposing somewhere north of $2 trillion in spending and um, just cut that back to 1.7. And now we're seeing the Republicans, uh, their response to that is an extremely watered down infrastructure plan, which they are saying is somewhere around like $975 billion. Um, but in new spending, it's actually only $275 billion. And let's just take two quick things on this. One, the fixation on the numbers is already a problem, right? Um, As Adam Tooze notes in his great piece, America's Race to Net Zero, there's been this fixation on sticker price um, almost to the exclusion and investigation into what's in the actual uh, legislation. And when it comes to Joe Biden's plan, the willingness to walk back uh, on so many of these really critical green initiatives. Because remember, this is being sold to us. The infrastructure plan is being sold to us as one way to you know, restart the economy after the COVID crisis. And two, to rapidly decarbonize of the United States uh, economy in the face of climate catastrophe, right? Even the Biden plan as it stands is not even, it's, it's, it's almost an insult to call it inadequate. It's, it's barely anything um, close to what we were seeing from Bernie Sanders plan, um, you know, and, and that kind of radical Green New Deal, which we so, so desperately need. Yeah, not to get stuck on the sticker price, but I think Tu's pointed out that the dollar amount is comparable to what is spent on pet food. 
um, by Americans uh, every year. No, I think that that's a I think that's a, a good point because um, it's it's weird to talk about the way that this is covered in the media, and I know it's because people who have been journalists in Washington for a really long time they're so used to these kind of obnoxious sticker price budget fights, right? So they are noting that there's been a shift in the rhetoric, um, but in a way that it's like oftentimes the the um, the the sticker price stuff it's like catnip. Um, for a certain kind of uh, of like Washington uh, journals, because you can say this is how big the plan is, and that's supposed to represent the actual uh, material activity there. Let's not forget that the Joe Biden plan, um, as big as they say, you know, the number might be, this is something that is set to be dispersed over eight years, right? right? This is not like, all right, it's time, you know, everybody should line up, we're going to repave all the roads and, you know, uh, put electrical charging stations all across the country. This is a slow, 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 slow trickle. Um, and if you know anything about American politics, that obviously means that it is always, um, you know, under under threat. And it's by by design because you can run on this. You can say, look what we uh, got. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't end up materializing. Um, but you need, people need to understand that, especially people who want to make these grand pronouncements that like neoliberalism um, is dead or Joe Biden represents some kind of new FDR style uh, president um, because other than those first few weeks when they were like seemingly very active, we haven't seen too, too much um, when it comes to these big proposals and never, ever, ever forget. And um, it's easy to do so that this was the alternative, the sane and safe alternative to the programs that were much needed, a green new deal, and Medicare for all, right? So when you see Biden walk back on the completely inadequate programs of expanding the public option and things like that, remember that they, you know, that this guy was elected essentially to stop Medicare for all from happening. When you see somebody who likes to use a lot of rhetoric about climate change, all the while, uh, while expanding and allowing more and more oil drilling uh, contracts in this country, um, when you see somebody who was trying to say that, you know, we're going to use infrastructure as a way to green the economy um, and is now walking back on most of that, except on the most agreeable things like, okay, we'll have more electric, uh, you know, car charging stations across the country. Remember, this was what was forced upon us to prevent us from having a green new deal, right? Don't get stuck up in the rhetoric of, um, of, of what's going to happen because, What's going to happen is the Republicans are going to make a big deal and Manchin's going to make a big deal about how, oh, we're not going to do this too much money. And then Biden's going to negotiate something down. And the point here is that it's not even close to what we need. Yeah, I mean, we didn't need, honestly, we need a lot more than fucking electric car charging stations that make people with electric cars feel like they're actually saving the planet. Um, <laughs> we're gonna, And I mean, by, and the other thing is, is like, the one of the main reasons to have Biden to prefer Biden and the Democrats to have full control is that when they fail, you have a very clear uh, example as to what the problem with this party is. They can't mm -hmm. they cannot blame it on the Republicans. They can blame it on Manchin or whatever the fuck that. Sorry, that's your problem, Joe. Um, the Republicans have a way of dealing with laggard uh, people who don't want to deal with what the party wants. So should you. And if you and if you can't, then that should come up in the election next time. Um, go ahead. No, no, I think you're you're right, but it's it's just like you can already see the way that they're they're framing this. I mean, the the the, the pro Biden forces 
um, uh, when it comes like, oh, we want to spend this much money and the Republicans are dragging their feet, right? And, and, and people always like, the deficit conversation in this country has poisoned a lot of people's brains for a really long time. What I mean by that is anytime you try to talk about any kind of transformative program in the United States, it's all, how are we going to pay for that? Do you want to increase the deficit? You know, in this kind of fixation that like, oh, America's national debt is like this ticking time bomb that's going to explode sometime soon, right? Everybody at this point is starting to come to the realization that that's BS, right? But for years and years and years, liberals fell into this trap where um, when they were in office, they, oh man, I'm so, you know, like very apologetic, trying to find ways to prevent the Republicans from using this as a talking point against them. And then whenever Republicans is in office, uh, Democrats love to make the point like, oh, look how much deficit spending they're doing. Look how much the national debt increased under Trump, right? Well, all your the Republicans don't care about the national debt. Yeah. They like they know that it's a really effective tool against the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is so fixated on on being right um, that they will you know finger point at Trump for increasing the national debt um, and then again reifying um, you know basically you know making this point deeper and deeper entrenched in most American subconscious that, oh, the national debt is actually a problem. Um, and then when they come into office, are fighting against the Republican Party that doesn't care um, functionally about the deficit, but knows that it's a very effective way to prevent spending policies from going through. Yeah. And uh, Michael Bennett, I don't remember who he even is, but he was uh, uh, trying to, on the on the floor of the Senate, I think, um, appealing to the GOP of their conscience so they could, you know, come together for this January 6th commission thing. And I'm sorry, what he's doing is worse than what the Republicans do because the Republicans are doing what they should do as a party. He's aiding them because this Mm -hmm. idea that there's some mystery over what happened on January 6th that we need to put, do a fucking study about. No, the Republicans lied about an election that provoked violence and they are maintaining those lies. So of course they're not going to come together. And this like idea where we act naive about the possibility of bipartisanship, that's serving nobody but the Democrats who don't want to do shit. Like, because they they don't need that. They don't even, who cares what McConnell says about the, the uh, national debt? It doesn't fucking matter that they should just pass things. And if they don't, then again, like, I don't care if they lose future elections. Like, I I don't know. It, it, it's, um, and I, and I think like, there's this, there's like this sat, this like insider talk where it's like, well, what if Democrats are just making a good faith effort before doing it? Like, well, if they start doing it, then we'll give them credit for it. But why the fuck yeah. are we talking about it? Like, why are we talking about it when it doesn't show any sign of actually materializing? I guess what I'm trying to preempt is what's coming is going to be, oh, wow, Biden walked back and this is a big disappointment. What we're trying to say is, yeah, I think that's 100% what we're getting set up for, right? And two, what I'm saying is what was proposed was not even enough in the first place, Yeah. right? And that's the real um, cruelty and evil of this entire political strategy is that, you know, you can propose something that only because of the insane political constraints, they're, they're not even constraints in any kind of like, like, fit, like real sense. They're self-imposed um, by, by, the, by the way that politics is done in this country. They're self-imposed by the two parties. Um, but Biden basically putting forward a plan that won't do enough, right? 
um, and then is prepared to to walk it back as much as as he needs to to get the GOP to to not kick and scream too too much. And then Biden will say, "Well, look, I had a fight with the Republicans, and this is why we didn't end up doing this thing that everybody wants in this country um, is to have an increased um, and revitalized infrastructure." to re-increase our, our greening of the economy. But these things are just, they're very simple and people very, very much want them. Um, but what we're going to get um, is more half-assed shit and more of this kind of uh, public-private partnership nonsense. We're going to get tax credits um, and things like that because fundamentally the, Dem- the Democratic Party is a party that is very much um, in love with capital. And, and just as one last sort of point um, that I wanted to make on this, uh, because it's related to the Biden administration, um, is what Kamala Harris is doing <laughs> in uh, the Northern Triangle in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Remember, people might remember a couple of weeks ago, we played that just horrific example of, of Kamala Harris talking down to folks uh, from that part of the world, um, completely ignoring the United States' role in creating poverty there. This just should prove to people that neoliberalism as a a lot of people when they use the term neoliberalism today there's kind of like pop understanding of it that's different from what it functionally is as an ideology what most people mean by neoliberalism is like the bad dams right like the really shitty dams right yeah often they just mean like liberal yeah (laughs) Um, sometimes more often than not they they mean liberal and you know for the most part you can paint with a broad uh, brush but i want to be very clear about the term here um, because neoliberalism is this idea that the market itself is inherently rational and good and productive, right? Uh, much like what we were talking about with technology, by the way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, anytime that the government interferes with market activities, it's it's a bad thing. And the role of government should be trying to step back as much as possible to allow the free market to find solutions, right? We all know that history. We know why it's super damaging. But I bring this up just to remind people that, you know, we're not, things might be shifting, right? And I think it's really important to acknowledge where they are and understand where they are. But when it comes to like a hegemonic shift, um, Kamala Harris is now going down to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and is pushing what she's calling a public-private partnership and saying that, um we must think beyond government. Uh, neoliberalism certainly isn't dead. Kamala Harris is now um, pushing to have Microsoft, uh, that sweet corporation, come in and create community centers to provide digital skills to women and young people, uh, a mass market of uh, underpaid uh, you know, workers, essentially. Um, Nestle, another sweet corporation, um, trying to get them to, uh, you know, buy more and more goods from that part of the world, um, as well as a whole host of other American corporations, including MasterCard, um, to introduce more and more people um, to the beauty of American finance. This kind of stuff is, you know, as old as American um, development policy, um, but it just should go to show you that when it comes to any kind of big like ideological shift or some kind of leftward lurch of the Biden administration, they're going right back into the oldest playbook that they have, uh, which is trying to increase the saturation of American corporations in other parts of the world um, and trying to treat that as a progressive development. Have, when did you first come across public-private partnerships? 
I don't know. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I did a project in a college actually on London's uh, public-private partnership for their crossrail train system. And it was meant, I, I, I've seen it on both ends, right? The start where it had all this promise of, look at how we're going to build this train system across London. Mm-hmm. And I've recently checked up on it, and there's just massive delays, way, way over budget. All these things that you thought, oh, yeah. that or not, not we thought, that were uh, put in the marketing materials for this. Um, that got like the politicians to you know support it were like the efficiency of the private market paired with public funds and it's just going to be a train for <laughs> an immediately Ooh. train and it's just been a, a big boondoggle so no so like society will take all the risks right, right. Um, and then you guys just figure out a way to make money off of this um and, and, and we'll get a guaranteed profit with like us you know a given uh, take from the ticket booth uh, to, for like a certain amount of years, right? I mean, it's it's, it's horrific, and yeah. you know, people who do any kind of development studies, I'm sure, are very aware of how devastating this kind of strategy has been um, for development in in the rest of the world. It just again, um, these things aren't just happening accidentally. This isn't happening because Kamal Harris is stupid and hasn't read the literature. She recognizes that her role is to be, um, you know, an envoy and an ambassador for the interests of American capital. And if you can sell it to, um, you know, dopey Americans as a way to fight for progress uh, for underserved, uh, you know, communities, uh, even better, right? Yeah. So, I guess the point of the segment is keep your your eye on the ball here because there's a lot of uh you know hot air being being pushed around regarding the Biden administration and its kind of radical shift to something new. Yeah, and as we're far seeing as time and time again that ain't the case. As far as Biden goes, uh I think when it comes to credit, uh it should be cash on delivery. Um yeah. <laughs> right? Like um none of this like it looks like he's like I I mean people should have been done with that when they didn't go over the fucking the parliamentarian to give people the uh the $15 minimum wage, right? Like mm-hmm. I, it, it was clear that Biden didn't want anything from the left and he doesn't want to give them anything. Um, and he's not going to, unless it is absolutely necessary. And, but he will talk about, uh, you know, maybe doing something, which is his favorite thing to do. So which we love, uh, folks, we will be back, uh, next week, obviously for the regular show. Um, and David Griskin will also have a, uh, a stream, uh, next Tuesday. I, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, in about 15, 20 minutes, we will be doing the post game. So patreon.com slash left reckoning. If you would like to get access to that, we're going to get Trump. We're going to get some Jeff Bezos. Oh, um, Jeff Bezos. You're going to want to be here. That's excited. Yeah, save your energy for man. And I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be expressing one area that I very, very much agree uh, with uh, governor Greg Abbott. And that is that Dan Patrick is a goofy motherfucker. <laughs> so don't miss that uh, join us at the post game at patreon.com slash left reckoning see you folks